haven't used that as specifically as a topic before. Okay. Hang on. Is it working? Yes, now it's working. Okay. Okay. Well, Joe, uh, you you ask a question about the Sambojana, most specifically the word energy, and yeah. it's it's good to put things into context so that you understand where that where that comes from. Mm -hmm. um, and what I'm pointing at right now is the relationship between the eightfold noble path and the seven uh, factors of enlightenment, or the Sambojana. Now, uh, the seven factors of enlightenment are also uh, in the Satipatthana Sutta in the right place where you would expect it. Uh, and it is also part of the wholesomeness. So we could say that if we can understand how the Eightfold Noble Path is fulfilled, it's fulfilled into factors of enlightenment. That that's the whole point of it is, is that when the skills are developed, they're developed into the Sambojana. And there they are laying right out in front of us, basically in the proper order that you would expect. Okay. So um, in the Sambojana, the first item on the list is unremitting sati. Yeah. Unremitting. Now, what does that word mean? Because that's part of the issue of why this is an enlightenment factor rather than a skill in development. That this is the developed skill of mindfulness so that your mindfulness keeps coming back and coming back and coming back whenever you need it. It'll be there for you. That that's what we mean by unremitting. Now, a lot of Westerners will use a Western word like always. But unremitting is not the same thing as an always. So let me give you several examples of that. The first one is my hand here is the example of a drum head. And this is the mallet for the drum. Is this the way to play the drum? Uh, well, the mallet is always in place. It's there. It's right. Right. No, it, it needs to hit the drum. Okay. So this is not the sati that the Buddha is talking about then. It's not that kind of an always sati. It's okay. more like this. Mm. It's there. Okay. It comes up. It pops up. Back again. Come again. Okay. And so this is the skill then it needs to be developed. This is why the wording of the Anapanasati is in the sense of uh, sati at the ana and sati at the pana. Anapanasati means mindfulness to take a long, deep in-breath mm. and mindfulness to take a long, deep out-breath. So there's two different satis. And if you've got it on long breath and on the short breath, that's unremitting so long as your mindfulness of your breathing. All right? Makes perfect sense when you phrase it like that, huh? <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is the whole quality that we want to use the breathing in order to develop the sati until it becomes unremitting. That it's there. 
It's in, when is it there? Whenever we need it. In fact, it's going to be there if it's unremitting at those times when we need it the most. That in fact, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talks about it in, in many ways, but he talks about it that we can see illness of the body. It's just another opportunity to practice sati. Right? Or one that I like to use for the Westerner, wakey wakey, is just you're you're tuning down the road, you're you're riding around, you're doing whatever you're doing, and all of a sudden you see the red and blue lights flashing in the rear view mirror and all over the car, and you hear that siren go off. Okay. How do you feel? Uh I'm start freaking out. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. That's what you do to sati right there. Right. <laughs> right. That's what we're practicing. We're practicing so that we can have that sati when we need it the most. Mm. Okay. Uh, that is basically what you could say in uh, army language is the word sati is the same thing as the word incoming. Mm. But here it comes, right? The arrow is in the air. Can you step in, can you stand aside? That's what we mean then by the unremitting sati is that you can be there for it. You can be alert. You can wake up instead of going off into the feelings that the situation would normally um, uh, create or occur for because that word normally here is also another word for reaction. The word reaction because we react and what does reaction mean but we're just doing the same old actions over and over and over again so we respond to the cop the way that we would respond to uh, a great big woman marching into the room to yell at all the kids in the room hmm. and so what how do we respond with fear we were taught to respond with fear that big woman who marched into that room with all the kids and making that noise, she wanted them to be afraid of her. Mm -hmm. And they blindly complied. Yes, mama, I will. Or yes, ma'am, we will be fearful of you. We'll break out crying and bawling and have a big time at it. <laughs> and that's how we respond to police. And sometimes people get killed by responding to police with fear. Because the cops pick up on that fear, they get fearful back, and then the next thing you know, any wrong move, and somebody's going to get shot. Because everybody's afraid. So if nobody's afraid, then there's no danger. Can we have the mindfulness to do that? So we have hmm? to be aware. We have to be aware before the fear arises, or as the fear is arising, and then just over and over again. Aware. I would aware, say the, the quicker you are or the stronger you, your wisdom, the more that you would know. In fact, just getting into that car and driving is putting yourself into danger and you can expect anything. That's true. And so you could be on alert and, and mindful during the drive, knowing that you could get stopped because that's the way things are in the United States. It doesn't matter how you're driving. It matters whether the cop wants to stop you or not. Right. So if you feel really good about yourself, then you could deal with the cop. 
but if you deal with it in the sense of being um, uh, angry or belligerent or any of that kind of stuff, he's going to react to that. So the right thing to do it is, good evening, officer. Glad to see you. Hmm. I'm really glad to know that you guys are out on the road giving us protection. I heartily support the police. What can I do for you, officer? Get him in a good mood. Hmm. You have that choice. That's, That's in true. fact part of the energy that we're talking about. Do you have enough energy that you can put pull that off? Do I? Uh, and, that would be a difficult one. <laughs> <laughs> Until we practice. Right. That's what the whole quality of the of uh, meditation is about: is to practice and continue to practice and continue to practice until the sati is there. Now, the one thing about this sati is, why do we bother to wake up? The answer is to see what's going on. You could say it literally as, wake up to smell the coffee. You ever heard that? What yeah. does that mean? It means to wake up and become into sensory awareness. The coffee is here, it's real. All you have to do is take a deep breath, and there it is for you. Right. So this is the quality that we're looking for, then, is to wake up and look at what's going on. Look at how we feel about things. Because only then, when we do an investigation, can we make a choice about what we're going to do. Okay. Now, that investigation is actually uh, unremitting investigation, which is the second one of the seven factors of enlightenment unremitting sati uh that the investigation cannot be unremitting until the sati is kicking the sati into the unremitting gear and then every time sati comes up it's just good enough and strong enough an investigation will happen and if that investigation is strong enough and wise enough then that means that when we see that it's unwholesome we will automatically have the effort to do the right thing. That's the energy. Effort, runs right effort when it is a skill is actually quite energetic. It's Johnny on the spot. Mm. You don't even have to think hardly about taking a deep breath. You just, is, is the reminding of taking the deep breath, have the deep breath is the same thing. It's the same, almost within the same mind moment. But they coexist that way. Okay, the waking up and the deep breath rather than waking up talking ourselves into taking a deep breath and then taking a deep breath. All right, so this is what we mean then by by the effort when the effort is a good skill. It is then left to be called energetic. It's no longer an effort. Now, how we, we develop this is when right effort and right view or right investigation and right sati they run and circle around each other very much like weights or, or barbell or, or weightlifting. And we weight, we weightlift with these three objects in the mind so that they become strong and powerful. Or another way of saying it is that they're fast and that they're skillful. Okay. So this is why they're referred to as skills, both in the, um, uh, Actually, they're, they're referred to as features in the Eightfold Noble Path of uh, number 117. 
features of a correctly organized mind. But in the seven factors of enlightenment, we're actually looking at what an organized mind actually is. All right. And okay. so now we've done three out of seven. And the next one on the list is actually in the Pali. It's Piti Sukha. Piti and Sukha here are actually combined together, unremitting Piti Sukha. What does that mean? Or excuse me, not unrefined, <laughs> unremitting. <laughs> over and over and over again, we um, can can practice being in a really good state. In this state of sukha, means that we're free from suffering, and the pity part of it has to do with attitude. So that uh, the step four, when that comes by. Oh, I've just got a gecko landed on the leg. Oh, there he goes. Did you see that? <laughs> yeah. And so um, the this, the fourth one of Piti Sukha is actually the outcome of having practiced Anapanasati, developing Piti as a skill and Sukha as a skill. And we also notice and reflect upon the fact that sukha is the exact opposite of dukkha. And that's true in several languages, including the Thai language and, and the Gujarati and the Pali are all in. Uh, but the, the one from from uh, Thai <clears throat> actually was learned. It, they, it brought it out of the Thai, uh, out of the Pali into the Thai language, but it came out in that relationship. Mm. Okay, the sukha that the Buddha teaches that is a skill to be developed, is to develop joy. But when we develop it, when we call it joy, that kind of means a different thing in the West. In fact, I've had students uh, often say, well, I've got joy, but it's not enough. I want more <laughs> joy. And then they're saying, okay, now we're missing something. Okay, so it's not really joy that I should be teaching the students. But rather, the real underlying issues about joy is number one is satisfaction. Mm. The satisfaction is the number one point. And that, uh, that satisfaction actually has a kind of a twin brother to it. And that twin brother is success. Success and satisfaction. Now, which one comes first? doesn't really matter, but in fact, normally in the practice of Anapanasati, in the suttas itself, it's actually piti sukha, and it's spoken of piti and sukha, but it's often developed the other way around, that you develop the, the sukha that turns into the piti. Okay. And... How that happens is because we begin to gain the sukha and start to practice it with just right mindfulness or sati, right view, and right effort, with the right effort being to remove unwholesome thoughts and to gladden the mind. By gladdening the mind, by perking the mind up, by starting to intentionally, habitually gladden the mind, then we begin to have the feelings gladden also. This is where, so if we talk to ourselves about, really, I don't have anything to do right now. Everything is okay. 
There's no alligators or crocodiles or emails to do or anything right now for the next 10 minutes. I could just sit here and relax finally. Okay, that takes care of the fact that now we can feel secure. We don't have to have anything on our agenda. There's nothing on the plate. There's nothing that has to be done right now that we're good to go. Or good to stay is even better. <laughs> and so, <clears throat> This feeling of safety and security is also deeply wrapped up with the feeling of comfort. And that this is something, this is the reason why in the old days of the Buddha, why they, why they set the way that they did was because that was known to be a comfortable posture. And they still sit that way. <clears throat> I've got a stepdaughter who is now 19. She still does it. I met her when she was 12 or 13, and she sits in the lotus posture at every meal because Thai people eat on the floor anyway. Right. And here the Western Buddhism is all about correct posture when posture's got nothing to do with your, your mind state. In fact, that what we're looking for in the mind state is comfort. Well, it's really hard to have the mind comfortable if the body is not comfortable. Mm. And this is an important point that sitting in long meditation sessions, making the body uncomfortable is not what the Buddha taught. But he taught comfort. That's why at Watso and Milk, you're allowed to stand after, you know, during, even they don't have long sittings. They only have 30 minutes at the longest. But even then, if you're uncomfortable, <coughs> it's okay to stand. Or even go out in the yard and do walking meditation if, you're, if your back hurts or something like that to really be gentle and easy on the body. Yeah. All right. But in fact, I can tell you a little story about this. This has something to do with um, uh, the way that horses are trained. And I think that, that I got this off of a video out of the 1950s. It must have been a Walt Disney thing. But there's a European way of training the fine horses that they have in Europe versus the way that cowboys in America trained horses for a hundred years. In the West, they would corral the horse and then uh, walk up to him, throw a saddle on, jump on his back while everybody's trying to hold the horse down and he starts bucking out of terror, right? And after seven days of doing that, finally the horse will settle down. Mm. Okay, in, in um, Europe, the European way is, is that they have a, a large barn with a dirt floor but that the, the horse is led in, in there, and then the trainer comes out and feeds the horse for an apple or whatever like that and pets the horse and spends some time with the horse and becomes friends with the horse. A day later, he comes out, the, the, uh, the trainer comes out wearing a saddle on his shoulder, draped down. And he and he shows the horse and points it to the horse and gives the horse another apple and 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 uh, uh, get the horse to uh, like the the saddle, and then very slowly and carefully he puts the saddle on the back of the horse without cinching it. You see where this is going, right? Mm -hmm. Several days later, they have a a twelve year old boy who has already been experienced in this because he was trained on trained horses and so he knows how to sit still 
And so they came and they lift him up and set him gently onto the horse's back while they allow the horse to watch what's going on. Mm. And by the time that they took seven days in America to, to uh, Bronco a wild stallion, they do exactly the same thing, but everybody wins mm. in the European way of doing it. Now, guess how most meditation students practice their meditation? More like the cowboys. <laughs> uh -huh. Okay. That's it. That's exactly right. And that's why their horse doesn't have much piti sukha. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's so difficult to get into these altered states where uh, <clears throat> they're known to as first jhana is because students are not actually talking themselves into it in kind, in kind of this other way of training horses. To be very, very gentle, be nourishing. Be very friendly with yourself. Okay. And here we are in the habit of being um, critical. Because we have been around other adults who were critical. Mm. And in fact, when we're raised by cowboys, we're going to be treating the wild horse of our own mind like a cowboy would. Jump on it and ride it. And watch it buck. But in fact, that's the whole quality that we're that we're talking about now can be also be said in the sense that when the children are about the age of six in the West, they're told that they've got to learn the ABCs, they've got to learn arithmetic, you've got to sit down at this desk and do what you're told and do your homework, clean up your room, put down your cell phone. You've ever heard any of that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's it. That's the that's the cowboy jumping on the horse. Mm. How did you react to that? Were I mean, you a bit as, of a bucking Bronco in your no, own mind. No, I've no. I mean, as a kid, I I follow. I think I I was following the 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 routine. I I thought that it would lead somewhere, you know. But I kind of I kind of fell into the the story and thought, well, if I just do this, then I get to middle school, and then I get to middle school, and then I get to high school, and then, you know. So I just got to follow this program. And from what mm -hmm. I know, those people that jumped off the program, they're really unsuccessful. So I better stay. Oh, Stay you mean like thing. Steve Jobs and Elon right. Musk and, <laughs> and those guys? Right. Yeah, the ones who were really unsuccessful. <laughs> but that's but that's how my as a, as a kid, that's how I developed. Anyways, I mean, I, I yes. know it, that's that's what it was exactly so. That's that's what we're meaning is is that we all were raised in a society, and we go along to get along going for delayed gratification and often resenting it because we don't get what we want. And sometimes we rebel. And if we rebel, sometimes then we feel guilty for having rebelled. And so we're just all up in a cycle of bad feelings. Mm. And uh, we weren't intentionally taught. I think that in fact, sometimes at churches that's intentionally taught but only in a religious setting that you can only feel good because we're talking about Jesus. Mm. Well, if that's the case, then why don't we talk about Jesus all the time and feel good? <laughs> but no, you got to only do that when you're at church. Um, but they stopped talking about Jesus really, really early in one's life. 
uh, Jesus loves me. Yes, I know is a nursery rhyme. It doesn't last into high school. (laughs) 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 Um, So that whole quality of our civilization is to train up a child to do what he's told to do. And so that's the direct product of that. That's who you are is you who you are is what you've been told to do. Mm -hmm. And that the real question or let us say if the if the question is, who are you? The real answer is not only that, that you're just the sum total of all the stuff you're learning, have learned and include still learning. But another way of saying it is, is that because of that, you're just a moving target. How can you pin down who you are when you're a moving target? That's like saying where the train is when it's on the road. Yeah. Sorry, trains are not on roads, they're on track. Check no. out. <laughs> so um, knowing that everything is a moving target, that things are going up, things are going down, and trying to pinpoint things with accuracy is the critical mind thinking at its best rather than the nurturing thinking which is everything is okay everything is fine there's no problems no need to go pinpoint the problem because there are no problems Hmm. and so that's the nourishing point of view and so we begin to nourish ourselves and with that nourishment comes that piti sukha in along comes with that the next one, and that is unremitting relaxation, that you can stay relaxed even when the police is rolling down your window. You can stay relaxed. Why? Because why? Because you remember it's unremitting, it's part of the program now. So no worries, mate, goes all the way down to uh, to that level but it needs to be rehearsed. It needs to be practiced. This, by the way, is step four of Anapanasati. And it's kind of an additional skill in uh, the collection of things for the first jhana. But it's not always there. There is only in certain suttas to where the uh, sixth item is, is listed. And that sixth item is the body's relaxed. So if you're in sitting in meditation and the body's in pain, one thing's for sure is you're not in first jhana. You're in pain. <laughs> uh, to where first jhana is very comfortable. And in fact, it's completely satisfying. And that's the key ingredient of it. So in the um, Sambo jhana, then that whole feeling of it peace and at ease and everything is all right and easy peasy and everything is relaxed then that's unremitting relaxation is in fact a factor of enlightenment right because uptight is not relaxed and relaxed or uptight is not enlightened That in fact, uptight is almost uh, the same as stretching or pulling, that things are tight. 
as if there is still a fetter or a bondage that's keeping us from floating free. But when we cut all the fetters, then you, you float. That's also this quality then of the fourth uh, item of the Sambhujana is that peace, which means now you're floating. There's nothing grave or gravity, no gravity left. There's nothing pulling you down, that you're free now to float mentally. So that then gives rise to uh, uh, the fifth item on the list uh, is, I think it's equanimity. I'm, I'm actually right now not even remembering all of them. Do you remember uh, the later ones? I know uh, that after this. I have is... it. Well, I have it in front of me, so that, that helps. But it's it, in this translation anyways, they say. Mind, mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture, tranquility, immersion, and equanimity. Oh, I did remember them all. I'm just counting wrong. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, because we've already... Wait a minute. No. I'll, okay. All right. You, you talked about... Number you four about, is Pittisuka. Okay, yeah, so Pittisuka, and they yeah. use the word rapture there. I cannot think of a worse translation. Okay. <laughs> so it's uh, Bhikkhu Sujata. Sujato. No, it's, it's not a particular monk's translation. It's the dictionary they all use. Okay. And that dictionary is put together by people who didn't know what they were doing, but they put together a lexicon when they were doing the first translations. And now all we need a whole redo. <laughs> I I often I mean, I often think that when I'm reading like because I, I read Bhikkhu Bodhi's translations most of the time and I'm very like happy that he translates it. But I I am often wondering just what you're saying of like, yeah, I mean, I you know, you kind of wish that you could could speak uh, the original language and yeah but anyways well, uh, <laughs> as an aside point uh, Sutta Central uh, Sujato's translations you can open uh, and bring the Pali language line yeah. by line and then you yeah. can look at their 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 dictionary by by rolling over each Pali word or yeah. clicking on it or whatever that's an excellent That's way to yeah. learn Pali. Yeah. Yeah. And I know, I mean, from, I, <clears throat> I, I lived in Sweden for a lot of years and I learned Swedish. And I know when you learn another language, your mind starts working in a different way that like there's just that's just the natural thing that you pick up. And it's, it's weird to see your mind do that. But yeah, I often think that about Pali, that what, what would that, you know, what would that change, you know? Okay. And, yeah. Well, this aside that we're in is, is that I strongly encourage any student who is interested to become interested in actually learning the Pali so okay. that you can see for yourself what the Buddha said, rather than reading the translations that we already know are problematic. The right. only problem now that you have is how can you figure out what the actual Pali word meant in the first place? Which means that you have to have some background in, in Indo-European languages and, and that kind of stuff. But it's a whole new different kind of, of way of looking at it in the sense that you investigate every word. Yeah. Right. 
An example of that is in there's a word in Sutta number 38 that ha, that is um, normally referred to as Gandaba. Okay. Now, the uh, traditional English language translation of that is the word spirit to be reborn. As opposed to merely spirit. Mm. That they actually add that rebirthing kind of thing in it because the translators are in that mentality and all the translators have translated it like that. Mm. But that the etymology of that word Gandaba is actually uh, Ganda, which has to do with singing, and a Gandaba is actually a musician. Okay. Or a musical thing, which means that when we're talking about the spirit, we're actually talking about the mood setting, that the woman will get pregnant when it's the right mood. It's not a spirit that is a spook of Uncle George that's been hanging out in the atmosphere, looking and peering through the window until mom is horny. And then Uncle George comes popping in the room. That's not the story, but that's the story that uh, Western Buddhism hears. That the Gandaba actually is the ambience or the mood or okay. uh, uh, the situation. Now, that may not have been uh, scientifically true at the time, but that was the understanding in the day. That the Buddha was not expounding upon and trying to teach rebirth and reincarnation. That is absolutely dead sure that he says over and over again that he only teaches one thing, Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda. And rebirth actually teaches us to become attached to the past, where he's, de yeah. he's definitely telling us to get rid of the past, get rid of the mm. future. Okay, mm. let's look at how the mind is reborn in this particular moment. Mm. Okay. Um, so this idea then back to the Sambo Jhana is, is that yeah. when we can see all of this, we're seeing the workings of the mind. And that means that by the time that we're relaxed, that means that we don't spend much time in our own personal hell anymore, nor do we spend our time as a hungry ghost anymore because we don't fall into great desire and we don't get hot. We're, we're cool. We're chill. That's the word Nibbana. That's what the word Nibbana means is cool or chill, baby. That's all that means. Mm -hmm. But why have the Western meditation group made a big deal out of it? A whoop-de-doo. I mean, a Nibbana for them belongs up there with, beside their plastic Jesus in the sky. Right. I was just going to say, I think it's because you think, well, it, and if I don't have heaven anymore, so I better have something to replace that, but I'm not going to call it heaven. So... Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Rather than just cool, just chill. Mm. Um, and so um, after uh, number five, what is number six and seven again? Uh, he says immersion and then equanimity in his okay. translation. All right. So um, the question is, which is the end game? Is it equanimity or is it immersion? Now, the real question is, is immersion the right word for this? Another, in another translation, it's uh, concentration. All uh, right. Is that the right word for it? Because in fact, the, the Pali word means uh, is samati. Yeah. 
And the word samati actually is um, described in several places. And it's not described as either immersion or is it described as concentration? Okay. It's described most specifically as unification. Yeah. Which means gathering all of the other factors together. Well, what factors are we gathering together? We're gathering together the seven factors of enlightenment. And so the gathering together of the factors is one of the factors. Does okay. that make sense or what? Okay, yeah. Now, the example of that <clears throat> is the yurt. And uh, um, uh, Nargajuna used that example with uh, Melinda during those dialogues, which was about 100 BC. So it was about 300 years after the Buddha died where they actually had to give examples because by then people had forgotten what the word samadhi actually meant in the time of the Buddha. Okay. And so we can use that in the sense of a teepee, an American, a native American teepee. Has ridge poles. Those ridge poles, each one of them by themselves, you stand it in the air, it's going to fall over. Right. But if you tie two of them together, they'll overfall, only fall over in one direction, but not another. If you tie three of them together, you got a tripod, you're getting someplace. When you yeah. get seven poles together, now you've got something going. Mm. Okay, now you've got stability. And what is the samadhi? The samadhi is where they all are tied together that gives unity. Mm. This is what the samadhi word means. That's why samadhi is uh, associated with jhana, is because gathering together the jhana factors is the samadhi, not the, what the mind is doing. Okay. So the gathering together of the factors of enlightenment is what you're talking about of the samadhi here. And that a samadhi mind is actually an organized mind. So think of it like this. Think of it as an alarm clock, a big one, old days, an alarm clock. And you wind it up and it's got gears and springs and all of that in it. And when that alarm clock is clean, and it's not it's not full of dirt and dust and it uh, all of the gears are in the proper shape and not one of the tear, uh, teeth are broken or anything like that. Then that clock will be in Samati and it will function correctly. I see. Okay. okay. You can all you can almost think of that Samati is the end result of general systems theory that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Mm. Or that the automobile. Uh, the sum of the parts of the automobile, every automobile part scattered all over the yard, you've got an automobile, but you don't have an automobile until they're put together in the correct way. And when they are, now you've got something new, transportation. Mm. So this is how we look at the mind as samati mind is one that's correctly organized to function correctly when the mind is fit for work, which okay. is precisely what the first jhana is all about. Mm is getting the mind fit for work so that the mind can see how the mind works. And so this is what the word samati means. It means that the mind is organized and a way of thinking about organized is, is that it is whole or it's unified in the sense that uh, it's got all the pieces and there's nothing missing. 
which means we don't want anything because we're complete. We've got everything that is needed, and here it is. We've got enough. So with that, uh, that sense of enough, if we want something, then we're not in samadhi mind. If we lie, that means that we're not in samadhi mind. That means we're just separate, that the truth is here one thing, and what we want to have happen is somewhere else. Okay. Also, when we're in doubt, could it be this? Could it be that? I don't know this. I don't know that. What about this? Doubt and worry. That's not unification of mind. But a unified mind is one that's got no place to go because it's got no, it's got nothing that's making traction. Now, can, uh, take that in, in the sense different from concentration. Concentration, to concentrate that alarm clock is like taking a sledgehammer to it and get it down to the smallest package that you can get it into. But then it's not going to function, but we don't care about functioning. We care about concentration. <laughs> This is how Western meditation sometimes goes wrong with because of these the, the bad translations that we've had. And so we all get confused until we begin to understand exactly what the word samati means. And then we recognize it doesn't mean concentration at all, just like the word dukkha does not mean suffering. Because almost nobody will tell you, oh, I'm so suffering all the time. But they will admit that they're dissatisfied. Mm. And so that's the whole quality then is to change some of the vocabulary that we use. Because that vocabulary actually rubs us in certain ways and 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 gives us information that um is not wholesome. And when things are wholesome, that means that things become unified. That basically you could say that reality is just one thing. It's very big and it's very complex, but it's just one thing. But how many fantasies or how many lies or how many constructed realities can we come up with? Mm. Many, many, many. Another example of what we're talking about is uh, when I ask a student how old they are, they'll say, oh, I'm a particular age, 24, 25. And then I says, okay, lie to me. Now, how old are you? And there's no end of the kind of lies we can tell. <laughs> right? That, in fact, falsehoods is much vaster than uh, the truth. Not only that, but the characteristic of human mind is, is that not only is it vaster, it's also faster. The old joke is, is that a lie can make its way all over town while the truth is still getting its pants on. So that means now that we have to do um, extra diligence on this investigation to start figuring out what's actually true, mm -hmm. as well as what's worthwhile, rather than taking somebody else's word for it, which we've been doing all along. And taking somebody else's word for it is basically what the Buddha means by sila bhatta paramasa. Attachments to the way things should be. Okay. And in psychology, Freud would refer to this as the uh, superego, with the ego, the superego, and the it. But Eric Byrne redefined those things to make it simpler and easier to understand by calling it parent, adult, and child. And it's the parent 
that is that superego, which is also the temporal cortex, and it is the source of all of our criticism and conceptualizations. And basically, it's the storage place for all the junk that we've been told our whole lives. That's, but that's not who we are. Who we are is not what we've been told. But the important point really is it doesn't matter who you are. The important point is that you could change who you are. <clears throat> that's the important point that we're not stuck with all of that stuff. Right. Okay. So the Samati mind is the one who can throw out all the noise. And just be whole. So now we come to the last item on the list of equanimity. And that where in the heck did that come from? Have you ever heard of the word equanimity outside of Buddhism? <laughs> you know, every time I hear that word, I always feel a little bit embarrassed because I, I it feels like one of these academic words that I that I should know. And I, I feel a little bit stupid, actually, where I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's because I have to think about it and I have to be like, oh, yeah, that's what that is again. <laughs> like, even though I've been hearing it for years and I, you're right, I only hear it in Buddhism. Uh huh. Well, that uh, the same problem is with the word mindfulness. It's only used in context of, of Buddhism, like mindfulness yeah. based stress reduction. They don't want to talk about the Buddha, but we know what they're doing. <laughs> right. <laughs> So uh, only so these are the problem with some of these words that they the translators really didn't even know what the words meant. And so they had to make up something. Yeah. Or sometimes they go way back into history to get a word like uh, the word Tatatha is often translated as thusness. Right. Yeah. What century did thus come out of? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I haven't gotten that one. Yeah. So here now, our uh, this present moment is a much better translation than thusness. Yeah. Okay. So also the word uh, upeka. Yeah. We can understand what it means, but it doesn't necessarily mean balance in the sense of justice with her blindfold holding the scales up. Okay. Again, that has to do with a permanency. It has to do with a final exam. And that the judgment has been made and there it is for all to see for all eternity. You know, that's the kind of way that that is looked at. Yeah, a much better way of looking at it. Let me give you two examples. One is a teeter totter. That if a teeter totter is balanced horizontally, somebody's got to hold it there. The natural balance is, is that one side or the other is going to become heavy and all somebody has to do is put some small device on it. And if it's uh, well oiled, it's going to make it. But what the teeter-totter is for is for the goods going up and down and up and down and having a ball at it or having a, 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 a cycling, okay? And just enjoy the ride. That's what it's all about. Okay, now if both kids go over to the other side to ride together, they're not going to go anywhere. Hmm. But if they balance, then the seesaw can happen. 
Okay. You could go so far as to say in that regard, good and evil are in a balance with each other, cycling around one another, up and down and up and down and up and down. And all we have to do as human beings is stop liking one and hating the other and just enjoy the show. It's a spectacular show. And that's what the teeter-totter is all about anyway. That's how things are. They're up and down. They're in cycles. They keep going around, around and around. That's the world's word samsara. And it's not the point that we can stop the samsara. Rather than what we can do is we can set the mind into observer mode and just enjoy the show. Okay. And why do we set ourselves in observer mode? It's because there's nothing to do that needs to be fixed. Everything is already okay. I don't have to go get my hands dirty just because my mind is dirty and clean my mind. And then I don't have to worry about my hands. <laughs> Here's another example of it. And that is imagine that you've got a fairly large fishing boat. Okay. One of the big ones. And you have a captain on that boat who has been captain on that boat for many, many years. In fact, he was probably a, 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 a cabin boy in his youth and that that uh boat can be at high seas and he's on the uh, uh the bow and he needs to go to the stern and he just walks right down there now you can have a land lover let us say an ancient co uh, uh distant cousin or something comes on board when the uh, when he's on uh in dock and the land lover can walk around the boat just fine he's got no trouble but now out at sea when the seas are high the land lover's there with his uh, uh uncle uh, the captain and the captain goes to the stern. What, how is the landlubber going to get to the stern of the boat? He is going to run into things. He's going to be grabbing wires. He's going to be falling down. He may be barfing over the side. He may be going over the side, but he is going to be in collision with a lot of things on his way to the back. Okay. Who's got equanimity? No, the captain. Precisely, precisely so, yes. Why? What we're actually saying is, is that the captain has sea legs. Mm. And sea legs are the skill to be developed. Equanimity also is the skill to be developed. To be at balance, to be at peace. In fact, you could say that at peace, that's the only place that we could be in order to be in a state of upeka or in a state of equanimity, because many times we actually do have to take our canoe out into the swamp of the world, which is often turbulent. Can you maintain your equipose? Can you maintain your balance? Can you maintain uh, your position and, and heading in, in a storm, in turbulation? That's what upeka means. Now, okay. the real question is, which comes last, samadhi or opeka? Uh, opeka? I would the... claim that samadhi should come last, even though in the text that it's second text, to the last. Yeah. Because, because it's gathering it's up that, all the factors. Because it's gathering up all of the factors. Okay. Okay. So that uh, is, is the short of the seven factors of enlightenment. And you can see directly that they are the roots of that is in the Eightfold Noble Path. With only Upeka and uh, Pasa uh, uh, as 
things that are not actually there in in the apex, but they they're natural outcomes of the the practice. Which one is pasa? Pasa is uh, tranquility or a peacefulness that you don't actually have peacefulness as one of the items on the on the path. That the peacefulness is actually part of kaya nupasana or part of the body functions in the Anapanasati Sutta. That is number four in the Anapanasati that we mindfully breathe in and mindfully breathe out and mindfully experience and investigate the body. Why? So that we can mindfully relax the body, go through, find attentions, and let it go. Mm. Why? So that, why is it sometimes translated as the body of the breath, and not the? Oh, now you're talking about an old argument between Bhikkhu Buddha Das, excuse me, Bhikkhu's Bodhi and uh, uh, Ajantanisaro, because of breath does not belong in the text because it's not in the sutta. That's something that uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi added in braces. Okay. And Tanisaro recommended that it get pulled out and Bodhi, according to the story, agreed to it, but it never got pulled out. Okay. In the, it's also in, because uh, the first time I read the Anapanasati was Thich Nhat Hanh's version, and he also does the body of the breath, like, mm -hmm. and not, not the body. But. All right. Well, now here's where we're coming from that, because they're both correct in a way. Okay. And in the incorrect in a way is where is the body of breath? Uh, it's within the body. Where? Where is the breath? Well, where is the body of the breath? The kaya, the whole body, the whole show well, is between I mean the nostrils here. Yeah, and, and down the to down. the diaphragm. Yeah, though so the di the word diaphragm in the Pali was wrongly and now often translated as abdomen, giving rise to the idea of navel gazing. When it in fact mm -hmm. is the breath that we're watching, not navels, not abdomens. We're watching okay. the breath, <laughs> and the breath, the body of the breath, stops with this long ridge of muscles. Okay. People who play trombones and tubas know all about it, because they have to they have to uh, actually develop those muscles as a skill. Yeah, yeah, so, I play clarinet. All right, so you know too, right? Almost yeah. the same thing. The yeah. question is, do clarinet players go off in the corner and uh, to hide and have a competition to who can hold a long clarinet note or who can get the highest or the lowest note? Uh, yeah, they did. Yeah. yeah, okay, that's it. We're talking <laughs> yeah. about breath control. That's exactly yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah. So musicians learn about that breath control, but a lot of people, they don't. So you can use that skill to begin to monitor the uh, extent of your breath. Because with the musicians they're worrying about, or they're working with or they're operating with the bottom of the breath. And when people are watching the nose tip, they're watching the top of the breath. And that one of the practices is to um, uh, to follow the breath or chase the breath in the sense that the thought mind moments are going from as you begin, start to be in breath, you start watching here and you begin to notice down until by the end of the in breath that you're in the belly. Hmm. 
And then on the out breath, as you begin to breathe out, you begin to work your way back up, feeling everything. And then you get into the throat and start massaging the underside of the throat out into the nostrils. Hmm. Okay. This is one of the techniques and it really does have the mind to settle down and start focusing because almost every mind moment now is a mind moment of being in the body. Yeah. Also, take, when thinking about the, the breathing, one of the ways of looking at it is, is that with the, especially with the nose step that had become so popular, there's two issues about it. Number one, nothing like that was ever in the suttas. But the sutta talks about, at best, body of breath. Yeah. Not one place, okay? Yeah. Number two, we do know where it, it showed up later in the literature, but it shows up later in the literature in the Pali language that means a cave. Well, a cave is at least inside of something, and the nose tip is outside of the cave, at right. best. Right. So where in the, uh, the language of the Buddha, it's still always the cave. Well, what is the cave then is the intact breathing tract. But one of the important points of the cave is in the neck area. To mm -hmm. be able to follow the breath means that you, it's really easy to get the sensations in the nostrils. But then where do you begin to lose the sensation? How far in does it go before you begin to lose it? Mm -hmm. I often feel it in the in the back of my head, and it often feels like I'm imagining something but it's it's like i'm sure it, it well, no there's so actually it's, but yeah, there is but, movement you cannot breathe well without moving the neck okay but it's almost it's almost like in the like just above i guess that is on the neck yeah i guess it's right above the neck but it because I, I feel the breath come in and i and it's like especially i feel it like kind of uh, filling the back of my head okay. somehow. And, and yeah. in the back or back there someplace is about the same level as below the nose tip. Oh, something, okay. Something back inside, back in here, okay? That makes sense, there, yeah. There is something interesting about the throat. What organ, let us say, what uh, uh, part or... Uh, uh, structure of the brain is closest to the throat? Uh, the spine or like the nerves oh, the of the... Back. Up oh, front, right, that's true. Close yeah. to the throat is what is called the amygdala. Okay. Which is, is also the source of fear. That's the source. That That's the organ that pumps out the juice that later becomes adrenaline. And it does okay. it through the penile and the pituitary glands. But um, so basically, when we talk about it in the sense of soothing the savage beast, the amygdala is a part of the brain that becomes the beast. Okay. Well, if soothing the savage beast then can be done with breathing by becoming mindful of what's happening on the inside of the, uh, the head, in the breathing, how far down can you gain sensation and start playing with it as a toy? Actually, literally massaging that part of the neck, which is the closest thing you can do to massaging the amygdala. Mm. Mm. So this is just a kind of philosophy, but you ask about the body of breath. Well, the body of breath has got a whole lot to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
And we're talking about coming into the cave and going down the cave and how far down in can you actually feel it before you have to go then to the outside in order to experience going out in just like you did before that there's so far in that you can go before you can't go in any inner. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that that there is no sensations in the basilic of the of the uh, of the lungs. This is why people can have breast cancer and cough themselves and their whole lungs are brought it out and they don't even know it. Okay, because you don't have any pain sensors in the lungs. Not in the lungs themselves, but boy, the rib cage and the and not the ribs themselves, but all of the uh, the baby back ribs that you've got. <laughs> that yeah. does no sensation, believe me. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and it's also kind of proprioceptic in the sense that you can actually feel and sense the breathing itself. Start paying attention to the fact that yeah, there's stuff going up and down and 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 yeah. up, up and down this way and up and down this way and back here. The uh, the chest goes up. All kinds of things happen with the breath when we begin to take long, easy, deep breaths that we are watching and paying attention to. Okay. And it is of great value, enormous value. So says the Buddha. Okay. To do this. Why? Because by doing this, for one thing, we're in the here now. How can you have uh, worry problems when you're just sitting there enjoying the fact that you're still alive breathing? Hmm. What a marvelous toy this this breathing box is. Yeah. And so start seeing it that way as something to be investigated, something to be played with, something to uh, have fun with. But this is, a, of all the toys that you've ever had in your life, no matter how expensive, the human body is the absolute best toy you'll ever get. Mm. And most of us only play with just a small piece of it. <laughs> <laughs> and so you can play with the throat. You can feel that stuff. You can feel yourself sitting up, that you can play with your posture. You can find positions where that feels really good to get yourself really relaxed and say, hey, how that feels so good. That's what we're meaning about about this, getting the body relaxed, getting it feeling good, getting it comfortable. Because okay. if the body is uncomfortable, how in the world can you become, get your mind satisfied? Hmm. That's quite so difficult, a, yeah. Yeah, it's a package deal. And this is what they're pointing at, okay? Now there's other parts of the body and in reality, yes, but they're not so much. In fact, you could go so far as to say there are other things like that. For instance, in the Satipatthana, it talks about the hands, of watching the hands and moving the hands. Well, while we're sitting in meditation, all we've got is the breathing, so we don't really need to do much with the hands, except work with the mudras. But then we can. There are things that we can do with the hands. For instance, we can begin to feel the touch. We could get the sensations of the hands very much alive again, that we can rub the thumbs together with the idea of which thumb knows the other one's there first. Mm. Which thumb feels which thumb when you're feeling your thumbs? It's a very interesting mind game to play. And remember, we got all the tools we need to play these games, is to get in touch with the hands, mm. to feel them. To know when things are crawling on the, on the body. That's especially useful in Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> but to know 
but because you can feel the, the skin, you can feel the touch. One thing is, is that when you're laying in bed at night, you already know what posture your body is in. You do not have to look, open your eyes to look at your body posture, you know inside already. So we need to be able to then start monitoring that and knowing that internal sensational system that we have that's called proprioceptic sensing which is slightly different than the touch sensation. This is deep body stuff that we can begin to see. So I can feel the touch of the hands, but where their positions are is proprioceptic, not touch. But it's still a kind of touching. Okay, so this is the kind of playing that we can do with the body that is uh, a mindfulness of the body that's beyond the breathing where the breathing part is also extremely useful and so it doesn't even matter whether you say body of breath or the whole body okay because they're all there for us mm. so this is a way of looking at it instead of saying oh this is right and that's wrong no we can take both sides and look at it from from other perspective and figure out uh, which is the better view okay it's good to go back and forth. Then, in fact, spending time with the hands is really an excellent thing to do. For okay. one thing, you don't lose your property so much because you're aware and mindful of where you set things down when you were in a hurry to get to the toilet. That would be useful for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As we take Could a mind moment to realize I am using my hands, I am putting something down here. So we'll talk about that kind of practice later because there's a whole set of practices that uh, that come out of the old Buddhism that have to do with training of this. That's, okay. that's uh, part of the, uh, the, the Satipatthana or how to deal with the Kaya Nupasana. But all in all cases, it has to do with taking control and not letting the body do what it does on automatic pilot. Okay and doing something consciously. Okay. An example of that is one student uh, would pick at her fingers, mm -hmm. pick at the cuticles, pick at the fingernails, and she wanted to stop that. And so I gave her the exercise, instead of the fingers picking on each other, have the fingers nourish each other. Mm. So that you start doing this and start rubbing your hands together and feel how nice it is to be in mm -hmm. touch with it. So instead of mindlessly having the fingers pick at each other, now we're mindfully allowing the fingers to enjoy each other. Well, this nice. is, is Kaya Nupasana. This is a mindfulness of the body. Mm. That's really nice. It does. It feels so nice. I mean, these guys are marvelous. I mean, I cannot think of a more marvelous tool that the human has other than the hands. Yeah. Marvelous toys to play with. So this is the Kaya Nupasana, part of the Vedana Nupasana. If we could begin to control the body by controlling the mind and controlling the thoughts with the mind, so that they're wholesome thoughts, we begin to feel good. We, we actually work with the feelings kind of indirectly in the sense that we talk ourselves into feeling good and then having the body invite the feelings into feeling good. And we could just really, really talk ourselves into seventh heaven. Hmm. 
You can feel the way you want to feel. Your whole life you spent feeling the way you were told to feel. Right. Or that you figured was the right way to feel in this particular situation. Like those big adults are yelling at me and I'm afraid the best thing I can do is throw a boohoo or a tantrum or something. We need to find out that that's not the right way to, to live. That, that let them do what they're going to do. That's just part of the show. Okay. And we can remain in the state of equanimity. In other words, when they're fussing at us, there we are out on that boat with in rough seas. Can we walk down the uh, the deck or not? Can we okay. handle this or not? <clears throat> that makes sense. Okay. And the answer to that is, well, most of the time we can. It's only when it's in high seas that we really need the skill. Yeah. We need to remember that we've got the skill, but we can handle anything. Okay. So handling anything, that's upeka. That's another word for it. We can handle anything. Not going to teeter my totter. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Or another expression of it is, can't touch me. You've heard that song, you know, nah, 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 nah. can't touch me. Yeah, can't touch this. <laughs> All right. And another expression of that would be what the Buddha says is that uh, though he uh, intends to blame me, he only praises me. Now that's, that's an expression of the Buddha. Okay. When somebody's trying to blame him. They, he can see the praise in it. And what and what do you mean by that? Well, uh, in one sutta, this happened when uh, a monk disrobed and quit, and he was in the uh, in the village gossiping um, about it, saying that the that there was nothing special about the Buddha. There was no superhuman qualities about him at all. All he taught was. Uh, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. And, but he's pretty good at that. Okay. And then when that got back to uh, the Buddha, he says that this guy tries to blame me, but in fact, he's praising me because all I teach is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Another example would be that a student would criticize a teacher because he's dogmatic. That he, everything he sees is either black or white. Right. Mm-hmm. The answer to that is, is that when you have seen black and you have seen white, you know the difference between black and white. And not only that, but you're pretty sure of yourself. You've seen it before. And why go mamby-pamby around? In other words, confidence is what this guy is criticizing. And I would say that when he would criticize me for being confident, I would take that as praise rather than blame. Knowing that he said it in blame, it's really praise. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because if you're if you're confident, then you're like, well, this this right. works. That, that you know, this, this, this is just how this is right. just how it is. That's so, well, I mean, right. That's the whole point. We want to get things so that we're I'd confident. Rather, I mean, I think I'd rather have a teacher that's confident than a teacher that is uh, kind of. Namby pamby, like oh, uh, you know, well, this way and that what way. If, 
But what if you disagree with that teacher? That is confident. Well, I don't know. I mean, wouldn't uh, you perhaps walk away disgruntled saying he's so dogmatic? When in fact, the real issue is not whether he's dogmatic or not, it's whether you disagree with him or not. Mm, right. Mm -hmm. So there's that whole aspect of it. And so in that regard, it's still praise. Mm -hmm. So um, that's that's the, the way that the Buddha looks at it is, is that we can turn any women into lemonade. When you have the lion's attitude, can't touch me. Okay. That even the criticism is actual praise. Hmm. That's a good way of looking at it. Uh, there's another sutta on that regard uh, where the Buddha is actually discussing the fact that he is um, uh, accused of teaching atheism. Now, what do you mean atheism? Because atheism is a brand new word. That's not a word that the Buddha would use. What did they say instead? They said upon the break of the, the body, the existing being is annihilated. Yeah, I was going to say he was accused of teaching nihilism, right? Well, no, that's not nihilism. Nihilism okay. is ain't, ain't nothing there, never was. You're okay. just a piece of meat. Okay. Okay. And um, uh, this is what is called annihilationism, that the okay. existing being does exist, but he's annihilated at death. Okay. To where the eternalist says, oh, no, I'm going to go right on. I'm going to be God's magic football. Mm -hmm. And he's going to either kick me into heaven or kick me into hell, depending upon his choice. <laughs> um, but the Buddha was neither of those three. And then, in okay. fact, he says, even though I'm accused of this, I still both formally and now only teach one thing, and that is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Well, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda really doesn't fit into those three isms. But we could put... Um, cyclism in there, and that would work, or maybe temporaryism. He's a temporaryist. That makes sense. That he's not a nihilist, and he's not an annihilationist, and he's not eternalist. That things pop up and then they go away. Mm. And that's, that's where he is. says, even though there are those who will revile me. For such, I do not have any digestion of the heart on that account, nor if someone reveres me on, uh, I do not have any elation of the account, uh, of the, any elation of the heart on that account. In other words, he can control his elation and dejection of the heart. That's his choice. And it's not dependent upon whether he's getting blamed or praised. And then the magic statement comes. And it's very high class language for Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, but I like the really down home version of it. And it says, why does the Buddha have that? It's because he's been there, done that. <laughs> been there, done that. Been praised before, been condemned before. No worries, equanimity or upeka. In other words, I can handle those arrows being slung at me, whether one's praise or the other one's blame. I've, I've dealt with all that stuff before. 
So that's also the attitude of the Buddha, which all of this is is lion's attitude. Can't touch me. Hmm. I, I I still am a little bit confused as to the difference between the upeka and the pasa, or maybe I guess they go together, but the upeka and what? And the pasa, like in the and the tranquility, like you know, because in, in the seven factors, they they sound very similar. You know, like tranquility versus equanimity. Uh, you know, number five and number seven. Uh, one is more relaxed in the body. Okay. okay. And the other one is more relaxed in the attitude. Okay. Okay. One's relaxed to the body. That's why it's in the Kaya Nupasana, is uh, relaxing of the body, which okay. then becomes. Uh, unremitting, relaxed. And then the other one, the opaque would be unremitting, uh, relaxed attitude. Okay. Well, you've been reading. You've got a lot of questions. Yeah, <laughs> I, I read too much probably, but. <laughs> well, I got a new book for you to read. What's that? It's called Joe's Mind. Yeah. <laughs> go watch, yeah. go pay attention, go notice, but notice in the sense of, hey, that out that goes. I don't need that one. Yeah. And, and literally start to talk yourself into feeling really good. Okay. I'll work on that one. That's a good All book right. to work on. <laughs> yeah, it is. Excellent. Well, why don't All we right. finish now? Yeah. And, and I'll talk Thank to you, you later. Much. Yeah. Yeah, uh, when should we when should we talk again? Oh, uh, whenever you like. Every okay. two or three days. Okay. All right. I'll give you a call in yeah, uh, a few days then. All right. Excellent. All right, Joe. Thank you very we'll much. I'll try and practice uh, everything and yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, oh, don't practice everything, just one thing at a time, the wholesome right. stuff, you know. <laughs> okay. I'll do that. Right. Bye-bye. Te tease you later. Day. Okay. Bye. <laughs>